So, Sunday mornings, we've been going through Peter together, but I believe we have about 12 men off a men's retreat, and we're going to switch it up and move into um, Luke today. Now, on men's retreat, I was talking to Dwayne this morning, and he said that uh, there's about 200 men at the retreat total, I thought that was neat. And he said they had, uh, <clears throat> during one of the sessions, the speaker asked anybody that's been born again, anybody that has received new life in Christ, to stand up. And he said most of the men stood up. And that that is an excellent testimony in the way that if you were on a jury in, in a courtroom, you would get two people up on the witness stand saying, yeah, this guy did the deed. And, and then you'd say, okay, he probably did the deed because two people had, had said this is true. And so he said there's this room where there's 100-something people that said, hey, this is true. And it's sort of a wonderful testimony. I think they're having a wonderful time up there. Um, if you have opportunity to go on women's retreat, I'd suggest going. I think they're also going to have a wonderful time. Um, I actually went on a women's retreat once. My, I, no, I really did. My grandfather was a pastor, and um, they needed somebody to go and run sound. They didn't have a girl that could do it. So I went with my mom to a women's retreat. There were 30 girls and me. So, uh, and they apparently loved having me there. That's what they told me. So um, it was an interesting time. I think it was really nice. They have a lot better food than the guys do. So we're going to study in Luke, chapter 4. We're going to look at Jesus and at Jesus going to church, actually. And, um, you know, what he does when he goes to church. So a little bit of background before we get there. Well, no. We're going to pray. <laughs> We're going to do background. Father, there's not much we can do but come before you and ask for help in every way, just in words to say, in attitude towards your scripture, um, in understanding what you've said and and who your son is and how he revealed you and what we're to be. And I just ask for just a, an anointing, a filling of your Holy Spirit to be able to do it and that your Holy Spirit would be in this room and would be instructing people because I can't really do that and you can. Um, so we just ask you to be here and to make all this happen and, and we depend on it. And we ask we ask it in Jesus' name, and amen. So at this point in Jesus' ministry, he has been, uh, he was obscure for about a year. Uh, you know, he was ministering, but not too many people knew who he was. And then he was popular for about a year. He had, at one point, about 500 followers. A lot of people liked him. And he, here in Luke, we're coming to where he gets rejected in Nazareth. And so he's just about to come into what was a year of people opposing him. Um, he had a, a rather opposed period as well. So he kind of experienced all of it. But if we were to look, we're going to start in verse 16. 
And what Jesus has been doing is he's been going around the Galilee region. And Galilee is the northern part of Israel. Um, Israel in that day was approximately where Israel is today. So if you look at a map and then you go to the north, there's a little sea up there called the Sea of Galilee or the Sea of Tiberias. And uh, you sort of go from that sea and go west to the Mediterranean, and that's, that's the Galilee. And the Galilee is, uh, was then, is today, largely a Gentile area. Nazareth in Galilee is thought of as the Arab capital of Israel right now. But Jesus is there ministering, and it's interesting that he's doing that because it's a fulfillment of prophecy from Isaiah. Matthew tells us about it. He says in Matthew 4, 14 to 16, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light, and for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. And what Isaiah was writing, and, and Matthew is quoting Isaiah there, was that when the Messiah came, even though Galilee, the northern part of Israel, was sort of all these foreign nations mostly lived there, the Messiah wasn't going to ignore them. See, a lot of the religious activity was down in Jerusalem. And, um, you know, kind of like, I think we sometimes think a lot of the religious activities down in a, a Bible college or at, uh, what's the, so I don't actually know, what's the college that people here think is really important to go to? Like, as, no. Uh, well, yeah, okay, Stanford. But, yeah, let's go with, like, theological activity. Biola, probably. So, you know, a lot of people think all the spiritual stuff is happening, Biola or Simpson. I grew up in a Methodist place, so I would say like Asbury. That's, you know, they, all, they all thought you should go there. And um, Jesus is actually, when he comes, he's not down in Jerusalem, down at the temple and down where all the teachers are. He's uh, up in the Galilee, Galilee of the Gentiles. And what he's doing up there is he's teaching in their synagogues. And uh, while he's going around to their synagogues, he comes to Nazareth. So, it's interesting he goes to the synagogues. Um, a synagogue was a place of Jewish worship. And if you had 10 practicing Jewish men, you could have a synagogue. And here's some Jewish logic for you in terms of like how they view the scriptures. The reason they came up with the number 10 is, you know, there's, there's this time in the Israelites' history where they had been brought out of Egypt. They're slaves in Egypt. They're brought out of Egypt into um, the desert, and they're going to Canaan. And they're at a place called Kadesh Barnea, and they send out 12 spies into the land to look at Canaan to say, can we go in? And of the 12 spies, two of them come back and say, yeah, we got this. We can go in. Ten of them come back and say, oh, no, there are giants. The people there are really big, and if we go in, we're all going to die. So the 10 people cause the rest of God's people, who he's just led out of Egypt, to complain. And um, God says, how long will this assembly cause my people to complain against me? And so they've concluded that the 10 spies constitute an assembly and that you need an assembly to worship God. And so to build a synagogue to this day, you have to have 10 Jewish males. So um, that's, that's where Jesus is going, though. And it's interesting because Jesus said at one point, he said, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So he goes to the synagogues because he's there to reach the lost Jews at this point. And so he comes to Nazareth. It's one of at least 200 synagogues up there. Um, 
we know that there were 200 cities up there with more than 10,000 people in them. It was really populated back then. It's like two, three million people. He comes to Nazareth, where he'd been brought up. That's verse 16. And Nazareth was his hometown. Nazareth had a bit of a reputation. Devin and I uh, used to live in a place, I won't name, but it's one of those places where we say, oh, we lived here, and people go, oh, I'm sorry. And, um, and really, it wasn't great. There was, we had issues with people on drugs walking around too much. More, more than zero is too much, but more than, it was more than one even. And uh, we had to call the sheriff on people because they thought that music at 2 a.m. was awesome. And we wanted to sleep. And it's kind of a rough area. And if you told me that a, a great prophet had come out of there, I'd say, from there? You sure? Uh, two of Jesus' future disciples, Philip and Nathaniel, Philip came to Nathaniel and said, we found the one that Moses and the prophets talk about, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And you would think Nathaniel's response would be, wait, Messiah? Prophecy's great. Nathaniel said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? So that's where Jesus goes right now. That's where he grew up. And it says he came to Nazareth where he'd been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. So Jesus repeatedly, like as a tradition, went to church on Sunday, or Saturdays. Um, Sabbath was Saturday for them. And it's interesting because Jesus, he knew everything. So we didn't have to go learn. You know, I don't know if you ever go to church and you think, well, I don't really learn anything. And Jesus never learned a thing at church. <laughs> it didn't happen. Um, and he was in the closest relationship you could have with the Father. Jesus never, you know, had to go to church to get close to God. I remember um, there's a guy that I want to, backpacking with him, and, and he just thought that the mountains were a place he could get close to God. And I think sometimes we think of church that way. Well, you know, here's been my week. Got to go get close to God. Jesus didn't need that, and he still saw value in going to church, um, synagogue in this case, and he's gathered there with God's people. And for any of us, whatever, you know, whatever state we're in, spiritually, uh, if we have come to know that God is God and have come to have some amount of relationship with him, we should be meeting with his people on a regular basis. It should be our custom. So that's what Jesus did. And he stood up to read. Oh, um, yeah, that's right. So he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And they would have, their custom was, they'd have seven readers. They had a priest, they had a Levite, and they had five members of the, the uh, local body. They'd read. And so Jesus sees value in reading the Word of God up there at church. And it's interesting, sometimes we can get ideas about what it's important to do to serve God. And one of the ones that I've heard thrown around is, you know, sort of the best thing you can do to serve God is make sandwiches and go and give them to the poor. Or, you know, something like that. Make sure somebody's warm enough. And there is value in that. But there's also value in just serving your local body. Jesus did it. 
And so, you know, wherever you're going, there's value in serving there. Jesus saw value in doing it. Verse 17. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. Now this scroll was from Isaiah. And Isaiah was written 750 years before this point in Jesus' life. So when we read at the beginning of this, Matthew quoting Isaiah about where Jesus would minister, and when we read now this passage that Jesus is going to say um, is fulfilled in their hearing because of him, it was written over 700 years before Jesus came. And it's important for us to recognize that intellectually, it can very much make sense to believe in God because he told things that would happen before they happened. And that is not something that people can do. I can't tell you what the stock market is going to do tomorrow. Right? That's, that's a hard thing to do. So we're going to read, or Jesus is going to read from the scroll of Isaiah, something that's written 700 years earlier. And it starts here, verse 18. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me. Now, the idea of anointing, they had a, a physical act for it, and they would take oil and they'd pour it on a person. And it sounds kind of dirty, right? Because you like, I want to shower, get the oil off. But the oil was there to represent the presence of God in your life, the presence of God's spirit in your life. And they would anoint just about anything. No, 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 no. They would anoint anything holy, anything that was for God's purpose. So uh, temple, that got anointed. The altar in the temple, that got anointed. The utensils used for it got anointed. The priests, they would have to shower and then dress and then be anointed. Okay, but uh, And then David, like King David, Samuel went to him and anointed him, poured oil on him, even though he was just a shepherd. And what it represents is that God's presence is going to be in your life, and it's going to empower you to do what he calls you to do. Like, it has a purpose. Anointing has a purpose. And when you pray to God, and you say, God, I need your Holy Spirit to come on me. Give me the ability to do things. It is the ability to fulfill his purposes. And what they did physically, pouring this oil onto things, represented God's presence. And it wasn't really the oil that was important. It was the presence of God that was important. And for Jesus even, he's saying that the um, Spirit of the Lord is on him and he's anointed. And we actually saw when he was baptized, the Spirit descended like a dove, right? Um, so Jesus needed the Spirit of God on his life, and we do too. He's this passage he's going to read from Isaiah it has sort of two parts. This first one, Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me, and then a list of things that's empowered him to do. So, you know, before you go and serve God, I think sometimes people will see another person serving God, and they say, I want to do that. That's wonderful. 
right? It's great that you want to serve the Lord, and it's great when you have a good example to follow. But don't assume that that person is doing it all in their own strength. Don't go try to do exactly what they're doing without asking God to give you the ability to do it. If you go try just on your own because you see somebody else do it, you might be kind of disappointed with the results or you might be very frustrated with how hard it is. Or there's there's a lot of ways that can go wrong. Actually, there's this great story of a, a pastor who he had just heard about this filling of the Holy Spirit, about the Holy Spirit coming on a life and the importance of it. And he was with some friends. They were walking. He said, you know what? Let's pray for this. So he had his friends pray for him. They'd be filled with the Holy Spirit. And then he goes and he preaches sometime after that. And there's a revival at his church. He says, you know what? I know it wasn't the message because I preached that sermon before. So he preached the same sermon one time with no impact and then asked for God's spirit to be on his life, giving him the ability to accomplish God's will, and then a revival at his church. It's a huge difference, and it's the kind of thing we need. Um, so don't just go through the Christian life like doing what you've seen people do or doing what you think is good to do just in your own strength, but say, you know what? I want the Spirit of the Lord upon me because he's anointed me. And, you know, I, talking to Dwayne this morning, he said, ah, I was going to try to imitate him. I don't think I can. I, I love that guy. He just said, if Jesus needed the Spirit on his life to do these things, how much do we need it? And that's, that's the truth. How much do we need the Spirit in our lives for living the way God has called us to? So here are the things that Jesus is going to do with the anointing. And I believe there are also things that we're called to do. So um, the first one is to proclaim good news to the poor. And there's a couple of words in Greek for poor. One is uh, penes, which is, he's a man with nothing superfluous. You, just, you have nothing extra. You go to bed at night, you're probably a little hungry, but you got to eat that day. You have some clothes to wear. You're working, and you're, you're just making it. Just making it. You don't have extra quarters to play with, but you've got, you've got a bit of food. And that's one word. There's another word, tokas, and that's the man with nothing at all. And the word used here is that one, tokas. And it comes from a word... Uh, When I, when I think of a way of describing the poor, I, I usually think of um, what they have or what they do, and I'll use like the word homeless. If any of these are culturally insensitive, sorry, I don't, I don't know. Uh, so I use the word homeless um, because they tend not to have homes. Or I'll use the word uh, like a, a beggar because that's what they do. They ask for things. Um, and then my wife also said that she thinks of needy. And I guess that's what they are. They, they need things. This word, this Greek word for poor, it comes from a word meaning to be thoroughly frightened, to cower down or hide oneself for fear. Um, And Barclay describes it as the poverty that is beaten to its knees. So in that culture, it's the amount of poor where you're kind of almost scared of people. Like you need them to 
help you because you have nothing and no way of making uh, like ends meet, but you also are sort of crouching or cowering. That's the word, what the word comes from. And Jesus says that the Spirit of the Lord is upon him because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. There's a lot more fun and easier crowds to minister to than the poor. But with the Lord's help, we can minister to them. And this poor, yes, it, it's important to minister to the physically poor. It's most important to minister to the spiritually poor because they need news of God's kingdom. And that's the ministry that, that Jesus has for them is that um, he proclaims good news. He preaches good news to them. And that good news is, is news of God's kingdom. Um, in Luke 4.43, he says, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well. And the good news is that this life, there is more than this. There is more than what you physically attained and what spiritually happens to you after this life. And that's what's most important. And so that's the good news. You know, Jesus said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It's okay to be poor spiritually because the kingdom of heaven can still be yours. You can be a child of God from there. Now, the next thing he says, a thing that he's been given in order to, uh, or the thing that he's empowered to do by the anointing of God is that he has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind to set at liberty those who are oppressed. Now, the idea of being captive and being blind and being oppressed, those all bring to mind what sin does to us. Now, I, I work at one of those plus jobs where they have too much food for you and it's not far enough away from your desk. And uh, on Friday, and this is an embarrassing story, I'm going to tell it anyways. On Friday, I went into this room where all the snacks are, and I look at the chocolates. There's this bowl of chocolate. And I think, I probably shouldn't eat any of those. And I walk out of there with 10 of them. <laughs> and then I go to my desk. I eat all of them. I walk back in there, and I think, I really shouldn't eat any more of those. I walk out with nine more. It would have been more, but that was the, the end of them. So... <laughs> So then I felt awful, and you might say, okay, I know what that's going to do to you over the course of a couple of years, and I, I think I know too, sadly, and yet I still do it. And on a much heavier note, sin does the same kind of thing, where you look at it, you say, I, I know I shouldn't do that, and then you do it, and it doesn't just, you know, make you have to loosen your belt, but it damages your relationship with others, it damages your relationship with God. And, you know, it, it puts, brings you into captivity, it blinds you, it oppresses you. When Samson, Samson was a, a strong guy, extremely strong guy because God's spirit was on him. And he had never lost a battle, at least not a physical battle. And Samson fell in love with a woman named Delilah. She was a Philistine, and the Philistines were always the enemies of God's people. They were always trying to oppress them or destroy them, always. And Samson falls in love with this Philistine woman and wasn't right 
for him to go down to her. And he tells her the secret of his strength. And he loses his strength by cutting off of his hair. And it's not that the strength was in the hair, but the strength represented his vow to God. And when the hair got cut, the Spirit of the Lord departed and he lost his strength. And what the Philistines did, Judges 16.21, says, And the Philistines seized him and gouged out his eyes and brought him down to Gaza and bound him with bronze shackles and he ground at the mill in the prison. He was made captive physically. He was blinded physically. And he was oppressed, pushing a piece of wood, walking in a circle to grind grain. That's all he got to do. And that's what sin does to a life. Jesus said, John 8, 34, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. And the idea of that practice is somebody that practices lawlessness. It's somebody where disobedience to God characterizes the person's life. That person is actually a slave to that disobedience. Jesus also said, two verses later, so if John 8, 36, so if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. And that is what Jesus is saying, is that while we can be captured, we can be captive and blinded by sin, he is there to set us free. That is what Jesus came to do, was to free us from that. And if you have heard this good news of Jesus and you've accepted it, then, well, one, you're free. Don't go back to it, right? It's easy to, it's too far off topic. Don't go back to being a captive of sin. But also, then it's our turn to go and proclaim that to others, right? Like, people need to know that they can be free from it. It's, it's important. And sometimes we look at people and somehow we assess that there's a room full of people and none of them really need God. And it's not true. Mostly because we don't know what their lives are like. They probably really do need God um, more than we know. You know. Struggle with things like just anger or unforgiveness and pride and just so many things can just be in the heart and their lives might look okay outwardly but they really need God to be freed from those things. So for us, we should recognize that that's what sin does to people, but there's also, we can go proclaim liberty to them. Verse 19, this is the third thing he's proclaiming, and he says to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. You say, what does that mean? That's kind of a strange phrase, right? Um, Now, I think God loves to give physical examples of things to help us understand what's going on. Like, that's one of the reasons we take communion. It's a physical example that Jesus' blood and Jesus' body were shed and broken for us. Um, It's one of the reasons he gave all the laws in the Old Testament about sacrifices. So we could look at the sacrifices and then say, oh, Jesus fulfills that. Those were just examples. They were shadows of what was to come, and they help us understand it. Because a lot of this stuff is hard to understand. Jesus says, I want to help you understand it. Uh, It's actually the same reason he taught parables. 
a parable is just a physical example of some spiritual truth. And so he'll talk about throwing seed as a farmer and try to make sense of what's going on in a room full of people based on what happens with a seed and, and you know, some birds and fields. And, yeah, uh, so it's a way of making it make sense. And God, I believe, gives an example like this, a way of what the year of the Lord's favor looks like, what proclaiming liberty to the captives looks like, um, setting at liberty those who are oppressed in an Old Testament law about a thing called Jubilee. Now, Jubilee was, uh, well, in, it's found in Leviticus 25, and Leviticus 25.10, and you shall consecrate the 50th year, happened every 50 years, and proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. Everybody got out of jail, like actually got out of jail, and um, was set free. It shall be a jubilee for you. So they could look and say, okay, there was this year when everybody that was in prison got out of prison. And then you can look and say, wait, Jesus is talking about a year, and he's talking about liberty um, and people getting out of prison. And what happened physically where we let everybody out of jail, same thing spiritually. And it's interesting, uh, just trivia for you, the word liberty, you see it there in, in Leviticus 25.10. That's the first use of liberty like that in the Bible. Um, was about Jubilee. And then the second use of the word liberty, like that in the Bible, is actually the verse in Isaiah that Jesus is quoting. So what are the odds of that? I think they're talking about the same thing. Um, another thing about Jubilee in a way that it applies to this verse that Jesus is talking about here is that in the year of Jubilee, all of the land would return to its former owner. So when the Jews, they came into Israel and there were 12 tribes and they got, well, yeah, so the land got split between the tribes and then split within families in the tribes. Uh, the Levites, they got sort of a special section, but um, that's why I hesitated earlier and just moved on and then I just made it awkward by mentioning it later. But uh, so it gets split between the 12 tribes and down to your family, and so your family had owned land for some number of generations now, and if you sold it to somebody, then in the year of Jubilee, that land actually became yours again. Couldn't permanently sell land. And it's interesting because a man, through sin, has yielded the earth over to Satan. When, when Satan was tempting Jesus, he says this, says the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, to you I will give all this authority and their glory for it has been delivered to me and I give it to whom I will. Jesus didn't correct him. He was right. You know, Satan had the authority on all of those kingdoms. And Jesus' redemption of man includes redemption of the earth. Um, it will someday all be subject to him and, and, and for us to be in and rule. And it's just interesting to me because God gave us this physical example of Jubilee where all the land goes back to the original owners and it is the year of the Lord's favor and it's what Jesus came to accomplish for us to take back all that we gave up through sin, um, all of the captivity we put ourselves in through sin, deliver us from that, deliver us from bondage, give us back what we were initially given by God. So... To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. 
Now, he rolls up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And in those days, you would sit down to teach. So you would stand to listen. And I think that we should maybe implement that. I would just sit the whole time, and you guys could stand the whole time. Um, Probably shorter sermons back then, maybe. But he sits down to teach, and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him because he's about to teach. They're going to pay attention and listen to him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. So for us, this passage from Isaiah, I feel like I should read the whole thing all at once just so you can hear it all at once. This passage from Isaiah was fulfilled by Jesus. He said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That scripture was fulfilled by Jesus. Now, what they had to do in that synagogue is decide what to do with it. Sorry, I need to not move my leg, I think. They needed to decide what to do with it. And actually, if we read the rest of the story, they reject him. But we here hear about Jesus and that he fulfilled this, and we have to decide what to do with it. He was there preaching the Galilee of the Gentiles, and he's showing a great light. And what they did isn't important to our decision. What you do with it is important. And you can take it and you can say, no, you know, I've seen churches. I've seen people that call themselves Christian that do things they shouldn't. Um, there's a whole parable about that. Don't pay attention to those people. And you feel like you're familiar with it. And so you hear it and you're sort of indifferent to it. I think that's something that's big in our culture right now is indifference to what God has said. Just sort of like, yeah, there's some words and they don't matter that much. I'm going to watch a cat video. I love cat videos, but not nearly important. They don't, they're not even on the same scale as being important the way that what God has said is important. So you have to decide whether you're going to hear what Jesus said and hear that he's willing to free people. You have to hear what Jesus said and believe that there are actually people that are captive to sin and that they have this need. Or you leave it as, that's not important. You know, I want to just go through my daily life and be comfortable. Um, I would encourage you to look at what Jesus said and accept it and then go and the same way that he proclaims good news to the poor and proclaims liberty to captives and proclaims the year of the Lord's favor, that we would go proclaim the same to others so that they can be set at liberty, so they can be set free experience what God intended them to be. We're going to have a closing song. Um, if you need prayer for anything, there'll be people praying uh, for you up at the front. And we're just going to ask God's blessing on the rest of this. Father, thank you for your word and for your son who came and fulfilled all of this.
I pray that you would draw our hearts to places where we are just excited to have been delivered from so much and where we can talk to others and um, help them to be delivered. Amen. I'm going to do something you shouldn't do and say one more thing before I go sit down. You have a room here with a lot of people that have come to know the Lord, and they've experienced being given liberty, being set free. And I think there is a lot of value in that testimony. You know what you've been freed from. I know what I've been freed from. Like, I've been freed from a lot of things, and sometimes I I don't think about it often because that would be super depressing, but what I would have been without Jesus would be pretty terrible. I have a lot of energy, a lot of ability. I would have done some terrible things, I promise. And praise the Lord that he saved me out of that and did not have me be like that. Um, But that's the story of so many people in this room. And if it's not your story, find the people in this room and be encouraged by them. Let their testimony and their witness be something that you pay heed to. All right. Thanks. Why don't...